0: How are we doing? My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I do have to address the sound issue just because I don't want it to drive you crazy, so I'll draw attention to it, and then you'll pay attention to it. Um, We have narrowed it down. Uh, There's interference between the stage and the sound booth somewhere under your feet. Um, And so hopefully we'll have that fixed today. We have, um, just so you know, upgraded our... uh, output to the internet, so the internet should be working just fine without any pauses, skips, or any problems. We've obviously fixed the screens. Uh, We just ran out of time today to fix the sound. So, just so you know, I have Meniere's disease, and if you turn that thing up about three times as loud and put it only in your left ear, that's what I hear all the time. So, uh, it makes it easy for me, I can just like, if I stand like this, it's just, it won't work. Well, we're in a series. And uh, we kind of broke it up a little bit. Yes, I now have a Um, son-in-law. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, Ed, for letting us go. And uh, uh, for everybody who filled in, uh, I also have a one-year-old grandson and a 90-year-old mother, and we had a great trip to Texas. So life is good, and tomorrow it's back to COVID. So it'll be fun. Uh, We've been in this series about the Holy Spirit, and we're in week 16, Actually, 27, but I'm calling it 16. And we're talking about the way the Holy Spirit manifests in us. As we draw nearer to God, certain things happen in us. We don't do them. They happen. We notice as our relationship with Christ gets deeper, we begin to have a love and a joy and a peace and a patience and a kindness and a goodness and a forbearance and self-control. We don't even know where it came from. We walk around going, "Where, where did that come from? Why, why do I care about this person now? And two years ago, I couldn't have cared about him at all. Now my heart's breaking. Where is that? What, what's happening to me? You see, we don't choose these things. They're evidence of the Holy Spirit taking control in our lives. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And if you missed that, the first eight or 10 weeks of this series, I went through each one of these and talked about what it meant to literally have the power of God flowing through us The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens to us no matter what. When we believe in Jesus, these things begin to happen. We begin to grow in these areas. If you're a Christ follower, you don't feel like you're growing in love and peace and patience and kindness. I didn't say perfect, that's Jesus. I said growing, then you need to open yourselves up and allow the Holy Spirit to manifest himself in you. And then we move from looking at the spiritual gift, or the spiritual fruit, to the spiritual gifts. In addition to the, to the fruit that we all receive, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to give you gifts. There are going to be times when you're able to do things that you didn't know you could do that advance the gospel. 1 Corinthians 12:4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice what it's for. It's not to build you up, it's not to make you a super Christian, it's for the common good. That means if you are fully working in the spiritual gifts that you have, and you're working in the spiritual gifts you have, we all benefit. It's for the common good. Not only do we benefit, but a seeking world benefits. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. These are all empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions them to each individually as He wills. And we've said these come from the Holy Spirit, not from some other person. Nobody can give you a spiritual gift. Nobody can teach you how to have a spiritual gift. The scriptures are very clear. They come only from the Holy Spirit and they go directly individually to the person that he wants to receive that gift. The utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge and the ability to discern between spirits. We're going to be looking at those over the next three weeks. And uh, just a couple things. One, there's no spiritual gift of discernment. Okay, a lot of people say, well, I have the gift of discernment, therefore you have to do what I say. Happens in church leadership all the time, trust me. There is no spiritual gift of discernment. There's a gift of discernment of the spirits. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. What that means is there are people who have a spiritual gift by God to recognize a satanic spirit when it happens. Okay, it's not discernment like I know what to do. It's That's of evil, that's not of God. I don't care how good it looks, I don't care how beautiful it looks, I don't care what's happening, that's not of God, okay? Now, these three gifts involve you and I becoming aware of something that comes straight from God. With these three gifts, we are literally tapping into the mind of Christ. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, the discerning of spirits, these are things where the Holy Spirit in us, the Christ's mind in us tells us something we could not otherwise know. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We, We don't think about this as much as we should perhaps, but when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, the things that he knows, he can share with us. In fact, he wants to share with us. He he wants to let us know what's happening. God doesn't want us living unaware of what he's doing, particularly during difficult times and trials. James 1, 2, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So he's saying in a trial, persevere, stay in it. Don't try to find the shortcut out. Let God do what he's doing and you will be complete at the end of it. But then he says, while you're going through the trial, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. You wanna know what God's doing in your life? You wanna know not the why question, but the what now question, he'll tell you. He gives generously to all without reproach, meaning he's not going to berate you, he's not gonna tear you down and it will be given him. So how does God share with us what he wants us to know? How are these gifts manifested? What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom and discernment? Are they the same, are they interrelated? We're gonna look at that as we get towards the end of this series. Today I wanna look at the gift of the utterance of knowledge. Now let me tell you before I start, every one of you has experienced this gift. We'll talk about it in a minute. The gift is manifested when God tells us something that we could otherwise never have known or come to a conclusion on our own. People who have the gift of the utterance of knowledge, they're not super smart people. They didn't make a deduction. They're not those super intelligent people. What happens is God reveals to you something that you could never have known from any deduction, any information, any way. It's not a good guess. It's not a lucky guess. There is a truth God reveals to you that you could never have known on your own. It's not someone with a lot of human knowledge. We're talking about God stuff here. Matthew 6, 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now this is interesting, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but Jesus one day said, hey guys, let's start walking north, we're going to an orgy. And the disciples are like, what? We're going to Caesarea Philippi. Now just so you know, Caesarea Philippi is a pagan temple where people go and around a, a, uh, some rocks and a cliff and... And lakes and that sort of thing, it's basically an orgy palace. They worship false gods by having orgies. And this Jewish rabbi told his disciples, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. Okay, he gets there. There are people who are worshiping false gods, doing all kinds of horrible things we're not going to talk about. And he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some go, well, John the Baptist. Some of the disciples said, Elijah. I think you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Some said, hey, they think you're one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? In other words, who am I? I mean, you followed me for a little while. We're early on in this. I just brought you to this pagan orgy. I know you're questioning who is this guy that we just followed, so I'm asking you the question who do you think I am? Now at this moment, every disciple was questioning who he was because this Jewish rabbi had just defiled himself like no Jewish rabbi they'd ever seen. Okay, they were in there, do I get out of here moment? And he turns to them and he says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you're not just some human, you're God. You're the Messiah. You are holy. You are spiritual. You're not just human. You're God in human flesh. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Peter, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. In other words, you have just received the spiritual gift of knowledge. God just told you something you could never know on your own. It came straight from God's mind to your lips. At this point, Peter had no reason to deduce that Jesus was God. All the miracles had not fully happened yet. He likely wondered about it, and when he went to Caesarea Philippi, I guarantee you he was wondering who this guy is. But when he spoke those words, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, I think he blurted it out and then wondered where it came from. Now notice he said living God. They're looking at a bunch of dead pagan gods being worshipped. And he said, no, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Not this junk, not this stuff. You're the son of the living God. To us, it's a logical conclusion based on what we know from Scripture. But notice that none of the other disciples said it. The 12 disciples didn't go, we know you're God. None of them said that. Most of them, I think, said, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist, hoping he would go, yep, that's it. They didn't say a word. They didn't know. But Peter knew, and there's only one reason he knew. The Father had revealed it directly to him, the utterance of knowledge, knowing something from God that you could never know on your own. Jesus basically said, there's no way you knew that. This had to come to you from the Father. This is not from a human source. Then Jesus tells Peter something very interesting. And this is where Catholics and Protestants start to go like this. Okay, so we're gonna talk about it for a few minutes. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus told Peter, God revealed this to you and you didn't know it. And then he immediately says in the context of that truth, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. He's not saying he's gonna build his church on Peter. He's doing a word play. He says, look, you're Peter, that means rock, right? I renamed you Peter. Peter. You were Simon, I started calling you Peter because I knew this moment would come. I've named you Peter because you're a rock. And I'm building my church and the foundation of my church will be this revelation that you just had. In other words, we're gonna go to people and God's gonna reveal to them who Jesus is just like he just did it to you. Person after person after person is gonna come to the conclusion You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's not going to come from them, and it's not going to be a decision they made. We're going to grow the church based on that revelation from God to his children. Now, the Catholics believe that what Jesus is saying here is that we're going to build the church on Peter, that Peter, as a disciple, as an apostle, is the foundation of the church, they believe that God just raised Peter to head disciple. Which is kind of interesting since he's going to deny him three times. But that's what they believe. And they believe that each year, or each so many years, every generation, a Peter is reincarnated. Who is the Pope. As a result, whatever the Pope says is gospel. Whatever his words say carry the same weight as Scripture. Scripture. They believe that literally Peter in some form is still leading the church and the church is built on Peter. Protestants would say, no, the church is built on Jesus, who's the cornerstone. And the revelation here is not that he's building his church on Peter, but that he's building his church on the fact that people are going to have the same revelation he just had. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Scriptures teach us that. The apostles are the foundation, and each believer is a living stone, building up the temple of God. Collectively, we all make up the church. The same church that Jesus says the gates of hell can't prevail against, and we'll get to that in a minute. First Peter, notice the book, Peter, Peter writing, Okay, don't just go, oh, it's first Peter. No, Peter's writing. The same one who heard the, okay. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthoods, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's saying, look, the cornerstone of the church is Jesus. The apostles form the foundation and the rest of us form the stones. Ephesians two seventeen, And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, That's the church. The church that Jesus says he's building is all of these people connected together as living stones. I watched people put in some stones at our house this week uh, and I kept wondering, what's holding them together? Are they gonna grout it? Do they just fit together? I mean, how does that actually work? The same question can be asked of the church. What holds us together? What allows us to be a holy temple for God? The answer is gonna be the utterance of knowledge. And we're gonna to get to that in a minute. So Jesus says, look, I'm building a spiritual church of believers. I'm not building a brick, by brick. I'm building a spiritual church of believers. What holds them together? How does Jesus build this church? Well, he told Peter, I'm gonna build my church through the same experience that you just had. The rock is not you, Peter. The foundation of this spiritual church is the revelation of coming to the knowledge from God of who I really am. I'm going to send you out in the world to tell people who I am. Some of them will believe not because of something they know, but because I'm going to reveal the truth to them. Each one individually will experience the revelation that you just declared. They will try to find me or resist me with their minds. But I'm going to connect them with my heart. They're going to try to understand me with their heads. They're going to try to use human knowledge and wisdom. But all true believers come to salvation for one reason and one reason only. God reveals to them who Jesus really is. Here's what most Christians don't know we didn't decide to follow jesus we're told that a lot but what really happened is we had a moment in our lives where we knew who jesus was we knew the truth god allowed our eyes to be open and we saw who jesus really was and once we knew who jesus was we couldn't help but follow him the main point of faith is that we were dead in our sins and had nothing to could do to save ourselves The scriptures don't say, well, you were dead in your sin. You were destined to hell. But fortunately, you were smart and you figured it out. And so you came to a conclusion that other people haven't come to. And because of that, God's going to reward you with salvation. No, that's not what happened. You were dead in your sin. You couldn't do a thing. We just sang it. I need you, Jesus, to come to my rescue. Where else am I going to go? We're not saved because we decided to follow Jesus. We're saved because God decided to reveal to us who he is and we couldn't help but follow him. Like Peter, each one of us has experienced a moment where God revealed directly to us that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And once God revealed that to us, we surrendered to Jesus. Had God never opened up that truth to us if we hadn't seen what he wanted us to see, we would never surrender on our own, ever. Scriptures are clear. Each living stone of Jesus' church came to God in the same way. God revealed who Jesus was and we responded because we knew it was true. God saved us from spiritual death by opening the eyes of our blind heart, tearing down our pride and giving us the gift of faith so that we could believe and grow. He even gave us the faith we need to make the decision. Nothing came from us. Don't miss this. You didn't do it. You don't make Jesus accept you. You didn't earn enough brownie points. You're a sinner destined for hell. You didn't decide to follow Jesus on your own. Nothing in you at all made you wanna follow Jesus. If it did, you'd have done it a long time ago. You decided to follow Jesus only after the Spirit of God released the truth of who Jesus really is to you. You and I were once dead and buried, done, destined for hell. Children of wrath against God. Not my words, Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were born natural, not spiritual. We were born in the flesh, and the Word says that those who are natural can't perceive the truths of God's Word. Even Satan knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Satan knew that he died on the cross for sinners. But Satan never had his eyes open. He never believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he never put his faith in him for his salvation. It's not a knowledge thing. It's not that you come to enough information and enough knowledge and all of a sudden you decided. It's that you came to enough knowledge to open up and to tear down the obstacles you have and then God revealed it to you to where you couldn't deny it. 2 Corinthians 4, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not here to play on your emotions. I'm not teaching to try to teach you how to, how to be convinced that Jesus is God. That's not what we did. We just gave an open statement of the truth and we asked everybody to examine their conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People are living blind to who God is. They're living in the flesh. We were blind to God. God has to open our eyes spiritually. We didn't do it. We couldn't. He did it. For some reason, at a moment in your life, God chose to reveal who he is to you. That's how you became a believer. You think you made a decision and sort of you did, but the truth is you had no decision to make because once you realize who Jesus was, you can't do anything except follow him. It's impossible when you truly believe and know who he is. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shined light into your darkness. He showed you Jesus. He brought you home. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't. We couldn't open our blind eyes. We didn't raise ourselves from the dead, and we didn't create our own faith. In fact, we naturally resist those things. But God, through a word of knowledge, broke through our resistance and brought us to him. What was impossible for us was easy for God. Nothing in your flesh, nothing in your sinful state would make you want to follow Jesus. Look at your friends. They have no reason or desire to follow Jesus. Why would I do that? And no matter how much you explain to them, no matter how much you try to teach them, no matter how much you try to quote to them scripture, they look at you as if they're blind to it. It's not as if they're blind to it. They are blind to it. The only way they become unblind to it is the Holy Spirit begins to move in their hearts. If the Spirit of God had not revealed to you what he revealed to Peter, you would not be a believer right now. Think about that for a moment. God died for you. God paid the price that he demanded for your sin. God came to earth. He revealed himself. He shared his truth. He left his truth behind. He left the Holy Spirit behind. He showed us how to be saved. He stayed here in spirit. He gave us gifts and fruits of that spirit. He reveals to us who Jesus is. And he even gives us the gift of faith so that we can believe. I want to believe. Help my unbelief, the man told Jesus. Your faith doesn't come from you. It's one of the gifts. It's one of the things that happens in your life. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. What does it say? You didn't save yourself. It's not your doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, not what you've accomplished, not what you've deduced. So that no one can boast. You see, when you realize that God saved you, it humbles you, it doesn't build you up. Why did he choose me? Why didn't he choose somebody else? Well, is he gonna choose that person? For we're his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in this. Then he tells, Paul tells Timothy, his protege, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Gift of God, spiritual gift, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Who gave us a spirit? God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. There it is again which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now is being manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God saved you and he saved me. We had nothing to do about it. Yes, we decided to surrender, but we could only do so once the truth was revealed to us and once God gave us the power and the faith to surrender. It all came from God. See, when you know something's true, when you really know it's true, you can't deny it. You can try, but it doesn't last. You know what's true. Once you truly know who Jesus is, once in your soul you know the absolute truth, you can't deny it. Have you ever tried to deny something that you know to the depths of the core of who you are is true? If you truly know something as true, you can't deny it long term. You have to respond to it. You have to live in the reality of that truth. So once we get to our Peter moment and God uses the gift of knowledge to reveal to us who Jesus really is, we become the next brick in the living church. Church is not built on Peter. It's not built on the Pope, and the Pope is not the reincarnated Peter. Church was built on what Peter experienced, the revelation of who Jesus is directly from God's mind and heart to our heart. And knowing that God saved you changes everything. It enables you to feel a thankfulness for what God did for you. You see, if you think you did it, you may not be worshipful. I mean, truly, if you walk in here and you think, well, I decided to follow Jesus and it was my decision and I deserve salvation. Who do you have to thank? You should worship yourself. You see, I believe a church that has a hard time worshiping doesn't understand who saved them. Because we should be running into this place saying, thank you, Jesus, because I could do nothing. Nothing. And instead, a lot of people walk in with some arrogant attitude like I figured it out and the rest of the world's stupid. No. It makes you realize that when it comes to sharing the gospel, the work's not done by you. It changes the way you think about evangelism. Knowing God save you makes you realize that no human is beyond God's reach. I might not be able to reach them with my words, but God can reach their heart. It inspires you to pray even for those you think are so far from God, nothing could change. I was one of those people. Rather than praying that God would give us the words for the perfect argument, we can pray that God will open the eyes of those he loves and show them who Jesus is so they can respond the way you did. Our prayer for evangelism should be Holy Spirit, go ahead of me and open some eyes. And then put people in my path that I can bring To you, help me, God, help you. Allow me to participate in what you're doing because you're changing the world and you asked me to be part of it. You didn't ask me to do it. You told me to go into the world and share what I've seen, what's happened to me. Be witnesses, I'm ready. That's why we used to do seeker classes at our house. Buddhists, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, they'd all come. And after the fifth week, I knew that whoever was still there was going to surrender to Jesus. It happened every time. It had nothing to do with five weeks. It had to do with the fact they kept coming back. I knew if they were coming back, the Holy Spirit was moving. To them. to Even if they were coming back to argue, the Holy Spirit already had them. They were locked in. They were done. It's just a matter of when they realized the truth and when they would admit to themselves the truth that they already knew. Usually they would come to the truth, you could see it in their demeanor, but they wouldn't admit it for another 10 weeks because they didn't want to admit it because they didn't want to be one of those Christians. We can pray for the people we love who aren't saved. Not not that we'd have a great argument or we could show them a scripture or we could send them a card or whatever it is. Those things might help, but what you really need God, open the eyes of my son, my daughter, my friend, my coworker who is an unbeliever and doesn't believe in you. Open their eyes like you did mine. You see, most importantly, knowing that God saved you keeps you from time to take credit for it. You just responded to an inevitable truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. Keep repeating that to you. I didn't do it. I don't deserve to be here. It's unmerited grace, unmerited favor. It's a gift, not the result of work so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God, a gift of knowledge. And while we're here, I'm just going to take a little while and we're going to address another statement Jesus made that I believe is way overused and out of context. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it the key question here is what is it is it the church is it the revelation of who jesus is what is what are they saying see we we often interpret this passage as some kind of battle cry for spiritual warfare bring it on the church is going to survive because You know, God built the church and nothing can stand against it. I've heard pastors try to use that to explain why their church could never go out of existence. Wow, I didn't know he said he built your church and that it could never fail. He's talking about the global church. I'm going to build my church and you Satan can't stop me. That's what Jesus is saying. And while that's true, it's not the point. Stay with me for a minute. Look at the verse carefully. On this rock, that's the noun of the sentence that is the subject of the sentence. We're doing English here, okay? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, a pronoun. It is not the church. It is referring to the noun of the sentence, the rock, the basis of salvation. The actual revelation of who Jesus is. What Jesus is saying is not that I'm going to build my church and it can't be destroyed. What he's saying is, I'm going to build my church through a revelation from God straight to people and Satan can't do a thing about it. In other words, I'm going to go to somebody, I'm going to show them who Jesus is, they're going to respond because everybody who knows the truth responds and Satan can't do anything about it. I'm going about the world revealing myself to people. Now, this gates of hell thing. Satan has taken sinners, all of us, and destined us to hell. He does that so he can make sure that we get there, right? We're shackled, we're bound, we're imprisoned spiritually. We deserve to go to hell. Satan's determined to help us get there. We're held as prisoners behind bars. The idea of the gates of hell is that we're being held inside and can't get out. You see, gates have two purposes. They either keep things in or they keep people out. A lot of people aren't rushing to try to get their place in hell. The gates of hell are there so that Satan can try to keep people from understanding who Jesus is. The gates of hell, I think, are the things in our lives that Satan uses to imprison us. For some of us, the gates of hell in our lives are lust. Pride, wealth, drugs, alcohol. Satan surrounds us with the things of this life that keep us from responding and seeking Jesus. If you think about it, gates have two purposes. They keep people out who wanna come in, they keep people in who wanna come out, right? That's what a gate does. The idea of the gates of hell is that sinners are in prison and they can't get out we're all born in hell. We're all born in the flesh. We're all born in prison and we can't save ourselves. There are gates, there are bars, there are shackles. We are prisoners, we can't get out. We can't go break down the gates of hell and free anyone because we don't save them. Only God does that. If people destined for hell are gonna get out of their bondage, it's through the faith they receive that allows them to believe in Jesus, the very foundation of the church, the direct revelation from God to those who are truly his. Jesus is saying here, through my spirit, my father and I are going to reveal to lost sinners shackled behind the gates of their destiny, hell. They can't escape. They can do nothing for themselves, but I've chosen them. They're mine and Satan can't have them. And I'm gonna build my church on the revelation, the knowledge of truth about who Jesus is and the gates of hell can't keep sinners from responding to who I am. I will reveal to those lost sinners the truth from God's spirit straight to their hearts. And when I do that and when they respond, the shackles fall off, the gates of hell open up and they move to be one of mine. What he's saying is I'm building my church on this revelation and Satan can't stop me. It's says, one day I'll impart the truth to them and they'll just know. They'll know who I am. They'll know and they won't know how they knew. They'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. And because of what they know, they're gonna surrender and follow Jesus. In fact, I'm gonna give them the faith to do that. That is the rock. That is the foundation. That's the essence of the church. That's what holds all of us together. We've all had the same word of knowledge from God about who Jesus is. And because of that, we responded with the faith God gave us. And now we're all living stones in that church trying to help build the walls. The gates of hell, the things Satan surrounds us with. Those relationships that keep us in sin, the drug that keeps us in bondage, the lust that keeps us enslaved. Nothing that Satan uses can snare them, Jesus says. The gates of hell can't prevail against my revelation. So our faith came to us as a word of knowledge from God. He lived fully human, fully God. But even Jesus, when he was on earth, didn't have the full knowledge of God. Let me show you another place where there's a word of knowledge. Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Jesus, fully God, fully man on earth said, there's things I don't know. There's things my father knows I don't know. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. For it is for those who it's been prepared. Jesus is acting like I don't know who's going to be sitting at my right and my left when I get to heaven. But he's God. He didn't seem to know when he would return. He didn't seem to know who's granted seats of honor in heaven. How can that be? If he's fully God, how can he not know these things? The key to understanding Jesus' seeming lack of knowledge on this matter lies in the nature of the Incarnation. When he became man, he remained fully God. Jesus was the true one, fully God man. Fully God, fully human. He retained all his attributes of divinity, but he emptied himself of the powers of God while he was on earth. It's critical to understand this. He didn't walk around with some supernatural halo bouncing through sin that couldn't affect him. He was as human as you and I are. If he needed to know something, the Father had to reveal it to him through the Spirit just like he does to us. Where do we see this? He emptied himself being in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that every tongue can confess that Jesus is Lord and the glory of the Father. When Jesus entered the world, he laid down his privileges that he had been in heaven. Rather than stay on his throne in heaven, he made himself nothing. When he came to earth, he gave up his divine privilege. He veiled his glory. He took the position of a servant. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my will, but the will who sent me. In other words, I'm not operating in my opinion. I'm doing whatever the Father says through the Spirit. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but through the will of him who sent me. Jesus gave up some of his godly powers, got his understanding, and apparently that was knowledge of when he would return as well as who's going to sit on Him next to him. In his ministry, we see the gift of the utterance of knowledge all the time. Remember, knowing something God has imparted to you that came only from God. One day, Jesus had to go through Samaria to meet a woman. Maybe this story's familiar to you. During Jesus' discussion with a woman, he revealed things he could never have known unless the Father had told him. As human, this knowledge was not available to him. The woman answered him, I have no husband. He said to her, you're right, saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you're now with is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive you're a prophet. You just told me something that you could never have known that only comes from people who speak for God. She knew it immediately. What he just revealed came from God. Only God or a man of God could know these things about me. I perceive you're a prophet, she said, as Captain Obvious. She knew. Why did the father reveal this to Jesus? To advance the gospel. Why did he give Jesus information he could only know through the spirit? To advance the gospel. I think he revealed much more to her than just the fact that she had five husbands. We don't know the full context of this discussion, but he was with her for quite a while before the disciples came back. Look at what she tells people in town. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. I suspect knowing the character of this woman, that was a long discussion. And everybody in town knew almost all of everything she's ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. Jesus used a word of knowledge from the Father to reveal to her the truth of who she was. He told me all I ever did. Because of that revelation, her heart was open to receive the word. She didn't need any education. She wasn't a biblical scholar. Through the word, she became another brick in the wall. And because of her testimony, God reached to others so they could have their Peter moment too. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you are my Savior. It goes on. And many more believed because of his word. He said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. They said this. For we've heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. How do they know that? Well, you came and told me your testimony. And while I was examining your testimony, somehow I know that he's the Savior of the world. That came from God. Just like Jesus revealed to you a word of knowledge, when I began looking at this, something happened to me and now I know. I know he's the savior of the world. I'm a Samaritan. I'm not a Jew. I know. It didn't matter that I was a Samaritan. It didn't matter that I was despised. I know. Jesus revealed a word of knowledge to Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael. We found him in whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him. He said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Samuel said, How do you know me? We never met. How, how do you know these things about me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Now, I love this, okay? Because Jesus didn't say anything except, oh, well, I I saw you in my mind under the fig tree. You're the son of God. Well, that doesn't follow, right? I mean, that wasn't what you expect the next word to be. Why did he say that? Because he had a Peter moment. He's talking about being under a fig tree, and all of a sudden he blurts out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the king of Israel. He had a word of knowledge. God revealed to him in that moment who Jesus was. By the way, at this point, Jesus had done nothing. No miracles, no water to wine, nothing. And somehow, through knowledge not his own, Nathanael said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? In other words, he's almost playing with him. You know this revelation didn't come to you because I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see heaven open. You're going to see things coming down. But he had in that moment a revelation. Jesus said to Nathanael, you ain't seen nothing yet. Why did the father reveal this to Jesus? To advance the gospel. So let's take what we've learned today and reshape our approach to those who don't know Jesus. If the people we care about, and hopefully that's everyone we've ever seen, the only way they come to know Jesus is if God himself reveals the truth to them. When you pray for your children, when you pray for your family, when you pray for other people, it's not that you have the argument. It's not that you have the word. In fact, praying that tells God you think you do it. Your prayer needs to be, God, you've gotta open their heart. You've gotta break down the barriers. You've got to put your spirit and people of the spirit around them. And somehow, God, you you are going to have to save them because if you don't, they won't be saved. How does that change the way you approach evangelism? Many try to reach out by arguing with people or having some intellectual debate. It almost never works. You might be able to break down somebody's objection to God, but you won't lead them to faith through an argument. That's why I don't like debates about God and the scriptures. That's not going to move somebody. Solid proof of who God is won't make somebody believe. Satan could have passed any test on who Jesus was. Didn't believe. Didn't trust him as a savior. Anything you do in your mind will fall short of what happens in your heart. We can debate and teach truth to those who are lost all day long, but our brilliant intellectual arguments, as brilliant as they are, can only serve to break down a few obstacles and maybe, just maybe, help them understand a little bit more so they'll be more open to what God wants to do. You see, we're saved by faith, not knowledge. And we're not saved by our faith. We're saved by the faith that God gives us when he reveals to us who Christ is. As I said, even Judas had firsthand knowledge of who Jesus was. He didn't believe. Many so-called biblical scholars have knowledge about who Jesus is, they don't believe. Many of our guides in Israel have more knowledge about Jesus than anybody I've ever seen and they don't believe. Scriptures do not say you've been saved by your knowledge and your logical deduction to follow Jesus. Aren't you a smart person? Come into heaven. Gain your rewards because you're intelligent. That's not what it says. It says we've been saved by faith and grace alone, and it comes only from God. Many of us don't share Jesus with others because we don't think we know enough. You don't. That's the beauty of it. There have been times when I've sat down with people here on the front row and we've talked about all sorts of deep theological things and I think, man, now they understand and they get up and walk out and tell me I'm an idiot. And then there's people that I barely say two words and they fall on their face and surrender to Jesus. It's not us, it's God. I've had pastors who said they started preaching and before they could get through their introduction, people were at the altar giving their lives to Christ. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself. It's not a knowledge thing. When you understand the foundation of the church, you understand that God wants to impart a word of knowledge directly to someone. He wants to use you, your testimony, your story, so that then he can show them who he really is. Rather than praying for arguments to use, we need to be praying for revelation for people. If people that you and I love are gonna follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit has to reveal to them exactly what he's revealed to us. We say it all the time, how can they not see it? They're blind. The word hasn't been opened to them yet. The way we live our lives, the way we love them and others, the way we demonstrate our faith in Christ will move people to wanna explore more, but our job is to point them to Jesus, not ourselves. God's gotta do the change. We share witnesses as what God has done in our life. We go and show them all that Jesus has taught. They see the fruit of the Spirit, hopefully, and they're drawn to want more. We point people to Jesus in love with patience and kindness, and God begins the miraculous work of the revelation of knowledge, and at some point in the process, they just know, and they don't know how they know. They just know. We do the introduction. God does everything else. Only he can break down the gates of hell and free people who are shackled. We can't do it. We couldn't even save ourselves. How are we going to save somebody else? No pastor has ever saved anybody. But he allows us to participate in the process and when it occurs, it is glorious. The people we love find God in their hearts. That's where the Spirit works. We may engage the idea of God with our heads. That may want us to seek more, but there has to be a revelation of knowledge from God that goes into the heart. Jesus through Ezekiel, or God through Ezekiel, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Why are you walking in your statutes? Because he caused you to. You'll be careful to obey my rules. Does it say you'll decide? No. I'm going to reveal to you who I am and these are the things you're going to do. You're going to dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'll deliver you from your uncleanliness. I'll summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. God is making an incredible promise to people. They must have been really good people. I mean, they must have been like the best of the best. They must have just been wonderful Jewish synagogue going, following people, right? Look at the verses before this one. Well, let's back it up. The word I hear is used 10 times. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll replace your heart of stone. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. I'll get you to obey my rules. You can dwell in the land that I gave you. I'll be your God. I'll deliver you. I'll make your grain abundant. Everything in this passage is God doing stuff and us receiving stuff. I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart. But the people he's talking to, let me give you the verses right before this. Therefore, Ezekiel, go to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. I'm going to do something because of my holy name, which you, by the way, have been profaning among the nations to which you came. You've been trash-talking me to everywhere, but my name is holy, and I'm going to make you realize it. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned among them, And nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be cleansed from all your uncleanliness. You are sinners bound for hell. You're profaning my name in every nation, but guess what? I'm coming for you and you can't do anything about it. God chooses and God saves. Everyone who saves deserve their destiny in hell. I've never saved anybody myself. I couldn't even save myself. Can't save people I love. If that's going to happen, God has to do it. You see, the gap from your head to your heart, we talk about it all the time. You know, the real difference in Christianity is the gap between your head and your heart. You just need to move it from your head to your heart. This distance is not yours to navigate. You can't get from your head to your heart on your own, never. There's a current of faith that is given to us by God that takes everything we know and moves us to believe in our heart. And then one day, we just know that we know. You may be able to identify the exact moment like Nathaniel did, or you may wake up one day and you go, you know what? Just can't deny it, I know. He's the Christ, he's the son of the living God, he's the Messiah, and now he's my savior. I talk a lot about the lists that people have before they get married. I was thinking about that when I got married, when my son, got, daughter got married. I'll go into this quickly, but all men have a list of why they'll never get married. I've talked about this before. Long list, these are the reasons I won't get married. Can't play golf, can't do this, can't eat my own stuff, have to clean my clothes, have to, you know, whatever, they have a long list. And we all walk around when we're adolescents going, yep, that's a, add this to the list. Bob can't play golf today, add that to the list. And we all have this list, and it makes sense to us. These are the hundred reasons why I'll never get married. And then we meet her. And all those reasons just, they're still there. They just kind of fade away and they don't matter anymore because we met her. You see, it's no longer thinking about marriage in general. It's marrying her. It's what love is. Same thing happens to us with Jesus. We come to him with our arguments, our reasons, all the hundred thousand reasons why we'll never want to be a Christian. But somewhere in the process, all of a sudden we realize something's happened in our heart and we didn't do it. And now it's not about knowledge, it's about love. It's about a relationship. It's about knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus is who he says he is. And he's gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And so even though you came seeking knowledge, you find him through a river of faith that goes from your head to your heart. And you didn't do it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us and care about us. I thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and that you chose to reveal yourself to us. God, today we can all probably name five, 10, 15, 1,000 people that your spirit needs to penetrate. That's why you tell us to pray for world leaders. That's why you tell us to pray for everybody. That's why you tell us to trust you with the salvation of our friends and family. God, forgive us when we've thought that we're the ones that do it, and if we don't do it, somehow we've failed. How dare we take credit for the greatest thing you've ever done on earth? God, we know that you're the one that saves. You're the one that brings people to you. You're the one that does all the work. Forgive us if we've ever taken an ounce of credit for you. But God, use us now. Help us to live lives that draw people towards you. Help us to live lives that show the fruit of the Spirit. God, help us to be open to whatever you want to do, to use us in whatever way you desire so that other people can have the revelation of knowledge that we have and can take their place in the temple that you're building for your Spirit. We love you. We thank you because we didn't deserve any of this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (music) Oh, <music>